Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Confident in telling you that we are tagged out, because I just smoked that deer. Nice shot. It's been really tough hunting, to be honest with you. You're listening to the Scree Country Podcast. So Colin is Colin Averett is sitting in on this episode of the Scree Country podcast for Mike Nielsen because it's a good reason because Mike and his son went out hunting this morning and they both tagged a buck and so Mike is stuck out in the in the field trying to take care of of, of his kill so Colin is joining us and as well as our guest for the episode Eric Stanishek. So, um, uh, both of you guys just say hello. Just say hello. What's going on, everybody? That's hello. Awesome. Good to be here. So, I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, Colin is my cameraman. If you see a lot of the uh, the hunts and other stuff that we do for Scree YouTube, Colin is usually always the guy behind the camera. Colin is also the social media manager for Scree. So, when you see uh, all the stuff that we post, Colin manages and organizes that. And Eric is one of our pro staffer guys with Scree, and we rely on him heavily for a lot of antelope content because that's kind of his thing. So uh, if you've seen some of probably any of the trophy antelope hunt stuff that you've seen us post with Scree, that probably came from Eric. So that's kind of the background. Um, I want to so so I want to kind of cover a few things that we are just kind of relevant to where we're at you know our last episode we talked with warren womack here locally who's just kind of a whitetail deer hunting legend and just happens to be my neighbor so it's really easy guest to have jump on here but uh just a wealth of knowledge and experience in many different ways both traditional archery self-filming traditional uh or not traditional but mobile hunting a lot of things that are really popular in the market today he this man's been doing them since the 50s 60s 70s and uh, if you uh, you should go back and check that episode. But Eric, do you do any whitetail hunting? I do. Yeah, I uh, I chase about anything I go to Mexico. But I I do hunt whitetail here in Texas uh, quite a bit, and uh, get to Kansas, Nebraska any chance I can. Usually about every other year. Well, Colin and I are leaving Tuesday, headed to southeastern Kansas, and we will be there for as long as it takes, pretty much. But hopefully not more than a week or so, and then we may venture back off to Missouri or Oklahoma or somewhere else. We're hitting the November whitetail rut. That's it's our We're leaving on the 1st, and we'll be filming and hopefully getting some hunts uh, on film and, and uh, just enjoying the, the whitetail rut. Mike and uh, a couple of uh, the other guys here at Scree are leaving tomorrow and headed to Canada. Um, yeah, they are. I, I've, have you ever done that style of hunt, Eric? I, I have. I hunted uh, 
uh, one of Shockey's camps up in Saskatchewan a number of years ago. I've never done it. I know I grew up um, watching the uh, you know monster bucks and and those different uh, whitetail deer hunting series of DVDs, and it seemed like they would always have a few hunts in there where they go up into the cold Canada like backcountry wilderness and they you know they go in on the snowmobiles or whatever and they sit in the ground blinds all day in that thick thick timber it's a crazy different style of hunt um i've never done it but i don't if if you follow along with scree you'll they did it last year and they killed some really nice bucks and the body size on those animals are just amazing like oh I, yeah uh, yeah, I've, I've always heard kind of the same thing, just like growing up watching the monster books and all that. Um, like Saskatchewan is like just what I've always heard, like deer. I mean, all kind of game. I mean, it's just crazy up there from what I from what I've heard. Did you were you successful when you did that, Eric? Uh, I wasn't. I, uh, I had kind of matured into my trophy hunting years and, and I'd passed a number of the 130, 135 best buck probably didn't hit 140 but man it was it was a fun experience froze my my uh, backside off for about eight days in the blind though just like you said not moving around sitting in that cold and snow yeah it's fun still well I, I i it's one of my bucket list things it's not my style of hunting i i don't like hunting on the ground for whitetails i just you know um i grew up in the south and we hunted in tree stands and my ground blind hunting experience has been limited to if necessary and type turkeys. of and well now turkey hunting's different i sit on the ground turkey hunting i still try not to get i don't like being in any kind of enclosure like when i'm hunting i want to i don't want the hindrance of having blind spots having the the i want to be able to feel the wind change directions i want to be able to hear everything clearly as i can I want to be able to have full vision all the way through. And so I don't, like, I understand the the, the unique and, like, decide, decided advantages that there can be to blind hunting, you know, um, with scent and movement and everything. But call me like a, a, it's kind of a hippie statement a little bit, but, like, I want to feel nature when I'm in nature. I don't want to, you know, uh I, I've just uh, so I I like talking. I wanted we were really gonna like get Mike to really talk about their hunt last year and talk a little bit about that on this episode with them. Um, with the, well, actually, when this episode drops, they will actually be there hunting, and I was gonna get him to talk about it a little bit more. But one of my anxieties about that hunt has always been like, I'll go in the Midwest and I will sit in a pinch point or sit on the edge of a cut cornfield or any anywhere really, and I'll sit all day. And just, you know, sometimes it's a grind, but I don't mind. I don't know if I could sit in a blind all day long. I just don't know if I could do it. I, I can't even sit in a duck blind for that long. I have to, like, get up and walk around the back of the blind when the ducks aren't flying or something. Because I just, uh, something about that. Incl- I'm not claustrophobic. It's just about, like, I don't know. I, when I sit in a blind. Like in, when I sit in jail in a, for the day. It's, well, when I sit in a blind deer hunting, I can't get the, I can't get the, uh, kind of like not the fear, but the anxiety out of my head that there's something going on around me that I can't hear or see, and so I'm yeah. honestly kind of like not nervous is probably not the word, but I'm I'm anxious all the time because I'm like you might miss something, and yeah, like when I'm sitting in a tree deer hunting or turkey hunting, if I'm you know, and I can imagine we're going to talk about antelope hunting and western hunting where you're out spotting and stalking, you can always just kind of sit back and watch an area and listen. And just kind of, you know, take that break and and just comparing it to tree stand hunting. I could always sit back in my stand and just kind of close my eyes and listen. And I still feel like I'm there, you know. I don't feel like there's the gap that that enclosure produces. Yeah. But I guess... yeah, I say I could definitely understand that. I well, I cut my teeth as a as a young teen growing up in Nebraska. So I I sat the trees. I you know strapped myself into the tree stand, tied it a little tighter when I wanted to take a nap, and and uh, did that. But uh, I I have hunted the blind. I'm not a fan of it. So I yeah. everything you're saying resonates. Well, I grew up in in the South, and you know we have probably the most liberal 
hunting seasons in terms of days of opportunity because we have we don't have bitter bitter winters our hunter uh, our hunting season uh our weather's good from you know for three or four months and we have an extended firearm season so like you know elevated box blinds for rifle hunting is pretty common especially over food plots and and pasture land and fields and stuff and so i grew up with lots of that and as a kid i and 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 having son i have you know sons myself that are 14 and 12 and you know when they were little an elevated box blind or or any blind elevated or not was great for kids because they can get a, you can get away with a lot more noise and movement and things like that and it's a great way to introduce them um and of course like i said i you know grew, grew up deer hunting in the south we have an extended rifle season and it's a worthwhile investment for people to have these elevated box blinds because you know our rifle season opens in the middle of november and it doesn't close until the middle of january so there's lots of days when it's raining or bad weather, especially, that you can sit in a box blind. I just, I guess, talking all, what is a podcast for other than just talking, but talking all around the point, I I, I, I remember watching all of these Canada hunting shows, and these guys, you know, there's snow, like, a foot up the side of the blind, and they're tucking in this, and they're sitting in there. And I, But I guess, you know, in that situation... Like, when it's that cold and there's that much snow, I mean, you couldn't sit out in that. It, it probably would be next to impossible. <laughs> you kind of got to have a, a blind to tuck up in yeah. and get out of the elements. But anyway, so the guy, uh, some of the guys uh, are, are going to do that. And then Colin and I are going to southeast Kansas. What part of Kansas do you hunt in, Eric? Uh, you know, western Kansas and then south central. I've got, uh, got buddies with land in both spots, so. Uh, I haven't hunted the deep, well, I take it back. I hunted one time the deep Southeast, uh, you know, kind of the trees rolling hill country, which I'm imagining is where you yeah, guys will be. Yeah, we're, we're actually going to be pretty close to the Oklahoma border in the Flint Hills, um, uh, near Caney and Peru, Kansas, just north of Bartlesville, Oklahoma, in that area is where we're going to hunt. And we've got a couple of pieces of property. We got, we actually got some real diversity. We have one piece that's along the Little Caney River, so it's ag. There's beans and corn. It's it's kind of what you expect in the Midwest. Then we have another that's across the highway, and it's in the cattle country. So it's got some CRP and some cattle pasture land and some milo fields. And then we have another one that is actually uh, there where our cabin is that we stayed, and it is actually in the Blackjack Oak Flint, Flint, Flint Hill. So we actually have pretty much everything that you can get in that part of kansas between the three farms that we hunt so uh that's exciting that's going to be fun we got some great deer on camera um we've hunted i've hunted i've never hunted in western kansas i've hunted pretty much everywhere from southern to central to north the very northeast kansas but i've never gone out and and you you mentioned growing up and hunting in nebraska did you also hunt western nebraska or. I did, yeah, yeah. Western Nebraska and the sand hills over there, little mule deer, whitetail, and uh, but most of my time in Nebraska was southeast. So, oh, really? Okay, so I've hunted a lot in southeast Nebraska. So um, uh, over around Fall City, I don't know if you're yep. familiar with Fall City, but oh yeah, yeah. yeah I, I spent some time kicking around Beatrice, okay. Wymore area. Yeah, not too far at all. Oh yeah, talking. I know where Beatrice is. We turkey hunted in Beatrice last year some and uh that i love that country and if people listening if you to me everybody talks about kansas and missouri and illinois and iowa when they're talking about midwestern whitetail hunting you cannot find better and more pristine midwestern hunting geography than southeastern nebraska in my opinion like it is everything that nebraska doesn't often in, at least in my experience, Nebraska doesn't often pop up in conversations as one of those top three or four Midwestern destinations. But man, I you know I've I've been fortunate to hunt a lot around that that uh, Northwest Missouri, Northeast Kansas, Southeast Nebraska kind of triangle, and Southeast Nebraska has got a lot to offer, a whole lot to offer. Um, I've killed some turkeys and some nice bucks up there too. I, I love that part of the world. So I was going to ask you that because 
talking about the antelope stuff, it's obviously open country game, and Western Kansas is very open country. You're pretty, and then te- I don't, I don't know what what part of Texas you're in, but you, you, I guess you're a you're a prairie hunter kind of guy in in some way, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm just north of Fort Worth, but uh, yeah, I heading out west. The the flats where you can see for a long ways, that's I mean that's pure antelope. Yeah, I yeah, uh, I'll hunt it all. I mean, <laughs> creek bottom whitetails to, you know, sheep in the mountains, the antelope as far as you can see. Well, Colin and I went out west and, and did an elk hunt in September, and it was our our first time. We saw some antelope coming in and out of the mountain range there, and, and we, we talked about uh, none, none of us on that, that trip have, has ever done any antelope hunting. So I, I know we, we posted, you, you killed a real nice antelope this year right in october i yeah i killed killed a couple i did three state tour this year uh during nevada tag wyoming tag and then a western kansas tag uh and uh and was successful on all threes but yeah two of them are, are 80 inch plus bucks so you know going to crockett award size so that's awesome um yeah that's really cool so i i was curious i you know like going into this conversation you know Colin and I don't know anything about antelope hunting. So we're going to use you as our uh, featured guest to, and, and, and I know there's plenty of people listening that have kind of like me that have thought about antelope hunting. It's always kind of been on a list of things, but never, never done it. So we're going to try to pick your brain and hear some stories. Um, you know, Josh has told me you're, so where are you at on, on trophy antelope what's your you, you how many have you taken now that that are book yeah, class so trophy well the the pure numbers are i've taken 34 antelope bucks 28 of them with a muzzleloader nine of those now are over the magic 80 inch mark the Muna crockett awards bookmark and uh which includes one of them that is the the current long hunter muzzleloader world record and what is the distance on that uh, distance on the, the big boy was 91 yards this year. I had a, a combined distance between the three hunts. My combined shot distance, I think was 236 yards. Maybe it's 263, but, uh, had one at 78, one at 53 yards, crawled in on embedded. Uh, and then my long shot of the year was hundred and 132, I think. So this, I know across the country, uh, you know, with muzzleloader, style hunts the very uh the regulations vary greatly what are the typical regu like down here in the south what they call muzzleloader hunting for whitetails is basically single shot high-powered rifle hunting it's not muzzle it's not it's not it's certainly not anything like flintlock or anything like, it's not even muzzleloader it's literally um rifle 70 yeah 45 70 like you can take yeah. a single shot rifle cartridge of a certain as long as the caliber was created older than a certain date range with a scope on it and they call it and they they it's legal during muzzleloader season it's insane but yeah. i'm curious when you say muzzle like what are the typical regulations restrictions on muzzleloader hunting in, in the antelope world so and that's that's actually a great question it really depends on the state it could be anywhere from you've got to have iron sights use loose powder it has to be a full lead cast uh, ball or or conical mm-hmm. um, and other states you can you can use a you know magnified scope on an inline with pellets and you know and a sabo so yeah. yeah it really really just depends on the state and and what I found um, a lot of times I'll hunt with a muzzleloader during the rifle season so everybody else is out there with their their long range rifles or high power rifles but muzzleloaders kind of what I fall back to and uh, in most of those rifle seasons, you can hunt with any kind of muzzleloader because it's a, it's a firearm season. So there's, there's no restrictions yeah. when you hunt during, you know, during the, the regular firearms. But when it comes to the muzzleloader side, it, it, it's really state by state. Uh, and most of them have a caliber, uh, minimum, usually, you know, 40 caliber minimum, anything above that. And then it, it just depends on the, you know, the sights, the powder, the bullet it depends on the state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like Locke said, we're kind of uh, noobs to this, but so for, for antelope, like across the States, are they all just over the counter tags or are some States draw kind of like elk or, or how does that work? 
Yeah, so there's uh, a great thing about antelope is if you want to antelope hunt, you can antelope hunt every single year. There's there's a state that will allow you to get one over the counter. Um, you know, if you bow hunt, shoot, Kansas, Nebraska, you can get a tag as a non-resident over the counter every single year and go out and bow hunt them. And they have pretty liberal season on, on uh, bow hunting in western Kansas, western Nebraska. Uh, you know, Wyoming is all draw. Colorado, mostly draw. But then once you get into that Colorado and even Texas uh, and some of your Western states, you can get landowner tags. So you can hunt them every year. You just have to pony up a little bit more money, whatever they want for their tags, uh, depending on on what type of quality they usually have there. So there is where there's a will, there's a way you can chase them every year. And that's that's part of what really, I guess, pulled my attraction to, to antelope early on is two things. You can hunt them every year if you want to, if you have the means to do so and and the desire to get out there and hunt different places you've never been. And then the second thing that that really got me is you're always going to see them. I mean, they're, they're not like a whitetail buries himself in a brush pile during the day. They're not like elk go in the dark timber. They, you're going to see them. They're out there. It doesn't mean you're going to catch up to them. Doesn't mean you're going to get a shot on them, but you know, it's like the adult game of, of chess, uh, you're going to see them, but you're in checkmate most of your day. That's yeah. Interesting. You said, uh, so you said you've white to hunted, so you can kind of, you'll kind of resonate with this. So, you know, they say like the staple for like a white tail hunter is early November in the Midwest, Iowa, Kansas, Illinois. What's like the equivalent to that for antelope? Like when's the best time? What's the best state uh, that people consider like, for antelope, like the dream state. Yeah. So your, your dream state right now, when we talk about the good old days of antelope, it's New Mexico. New Mexico is putting out more trophy antelope every single year, uh, really than any other state. Uh, their population's not as great as, as say Wyoming. I mean, Wyoming is one of those states for pure opportunity. There's more antelope than there are people in the state of Wyoming. So there, there is plenty of opportunity. Sounds out like there. where I want to go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, you're going to see a lot of them. Yeah, everywhere you go, you're going to see them in Wyoming. But yeah, to to answer your question, that you know, New Mexico is probably the state right now. And New Mexico, there's there's draw opportunities, but uh, they also opened up three years ago. Four, well, yeah, three seasons ago, four seasons ago, they opened up an opportunity for landowners to decide how many people they want hunting their property. So all of us can go out there, go to Walmart, buy a tag for the non-resident price, and now go find a landowner who will sign your permission slip and give you permission to hunt their ground in a handful of their units. It's not the entire state, but a handful of their units are. You know, what's always, and and I'm, I am diverting a little bit, not, not, not completely, but a little bit, because you saying that you're one of these, people that I get to talk to on podcasts or are or, or just in my travels here that can really understand this because you've hunted uh, kind of broadly and uh, in, in kind of both worlds. It is always interesting to me the difference between private land access in different parts of the country in different – because what you're talking about right there, nobody would have any success implementing a program like that in the whitetail world. Like it just it, – it, it, especially here in the South, like if there's an acre of land that's huntable, somebody is hunting it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so crazy. So that's, so do you, I, I didn't mean to divert. Um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to, you to finish all that, but I, you know, for people in that situation, I mean, is it, is it hard to get those permission slips or are people pretty amenable to it or? So it, uh, it, it'll take a lot of knocking on doors, but, uh, but you'll find a handful. Really, uh, the last three years I hunted New Mexico was a different unit, different landowner, totally different property I'd never been on, but permission we were able to access. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of door knocking with that. I, and growing up in Nebraska, I was used to knocking doors. You know, when I was 13, 14 years old trying to find a place to hunt, and we lived in a little tiny town, so it's not like I had property. Um, I was used to knocking on doors, you know, bringing a bag of cheese or bag of jerky. And, and now, now that I'm old enough, it's bringing a bottle of whiskey, bringing a, a <laughs> checkbook over a bush. That's, that's, that's So I'm guessing in that, in, persuasion. yeah, in, in that, 
in that whole in that you know in that vein like i am imagining and correct me if i'm off but i'm imagining you you, you identify an area you know where you want to be licensed and then you kind of when you you say you see them from the highway from the back roads from everywhere you find these antelope and then you figure out who owns that property and then go knock on those doors or are you is that yes. the order of operations so to speak? yeah yeah that is in fact that uh, exactly what you mentioned was my kansas western kansas hunt this year i, I drew muzzleloader tag and i i knew one landowner that i'd called ahead of time and he had six thousand acres he was like yeah we got a few antelope so i met with him the first day he had three antelope like literally three antelope on his entire every acre he owned and all of his neighbors that he gave me kind of, you know, slide through passage on. Uh, So I drove roads. I drove 178 miles on my truck that first day of scouting and found only 11 total antelope. Uh, It's not a lot in Western Kansas, not a lot, but uh, in fact, this one, this can turn into a whole story right here. Go for it. Go for it. People love stories. People love stories. (laughs) So I had two days of scout, 178 miles on the truck that first day. So 11 total antelope and nothing that I would say made me want to, you know, even pull my gun out of the, out of the case. Um, And second day of scouting was really kind of the same thing. Found a couple more, knocked on a couple more doors just to talk to some people, stopped a couple of ranchers on the road and and just chatted with them. But it wasn't looking like it was going to be a great hunt. Opening morning. So I get my, my muzzleloader out. I actually took two muzzleloaders on this hunt. I took my old Hawken octagon barrel, 50 cal. And, uh, and then I took my inline as well, not knowing exactly what I was going to run into, you know, big fields, wheat fields or anything where I was going to have to take a longer shot than normal. Didn't know. So I took both guns. Opening morning, it's 4.30 in the morning. Get ready to load my guns for the day. Put them in the truck. I don't have my powder. I don't have my primers. I don't have any bullets with me. And so I call back to Texas. I'm 550 miles away. I call my wife. I wake her up and I said, okay, I'm living a real nightmare here. Can you walk up to the trophy room and just take a picture on what's on my coffee table up there? And she was like, why do you want me to get it? And I said, please just do this for me. And she walks up there. She sends me a picture and it's my powder. It's my primers. It's my bullets. They're still sitting there. I remembered where I forgot them. Um, and boy, if you could be a fly on the wall, how frantic and panicked I was in the hotel that, that morning. So this is my number one problem. Even if I see a good antelope, I'm not shooting anything. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I am 40 miles from Lamar, Colorado. And I decide, well, they have a sporting goods store, opens at 830 in the morning. I'm just going to drive over there. Opening day of Kansas season, I'm driving to Colorado. Uh, <laughs> I get over there and, and they can help me out a little bit. They had lead balls. 45 caliber lead balls. I'm shooting a 50 caliber muzzleloader. 45 is a little bit smaller. So I, I'm like, okay, what do you have for patches? And they, they had patches. So I figure, okay, I can double patch a 45 caliber ball, make it work in my 50 caliber hawking. Uh, only problem is now I still have no primers. I have no, uh, no powder. So I start looking up little tiny gun shops. And here's what I love about the Midwest. If you have a cause that is worthwhile, Midwest are some of the best people in this world. They will fight for you to make it happen. Uh, I ended up finding a guy who had number 10 primers and he, he wasn't even a, a gun store owner, but this guy said, Hey, this guy's, he's got all kinds of stuff in his bunker and he had number 10 primers. Well, now I still need bullets. And I mean, I drove, I ended up hitting three or four different little gun shops and they finally steered me to a guy in the middle of nowhere, runs a gun shop out of his Quonset on his little two acre corner parcel. And my gosh, if he did not have Pyrodex pellet 50 grain powder. So I've got a hodgepodge of a little bit of everything. It's one o'clock in the afternoon now, opening day. (laughs) And I'm driving everywhere. So I have everything I need. I get back to where I could shoot on on the first rancher's property. I shoot, okay, I'm good at a hundred. That's all I need to know, ready to go. Well. As I was driving back from there to a new spot that I wanted to look at, I see a little antelope buck walked right across the road in front of me, right across the gravel road. And I thought, okay, this is looking better. Well, what he was walking towards was the biggest Kansas antelope that I have seen in any of my time in Kansas, uh, who was hanging out with three does. So Onyx Map pulls it up, 
Look, I see a name. I wish Onyx gave phone numbers. I understand why they don't. <laughs> yeah, I've been in that boat with you before, but I get it too. <laughs> so I wish. Anyway, I went to you know the closest house I could find to that property, talked to that guy. Guy didn't know the owner, but he knew the people who farmed it. Gave me their phone number, called this gal on a, on a cell phone. She says, well, I'll talk to the landowner. I'll let you know. I pulled over. I parked on the side of the road, watched those antelope till dark, waiting for a call back because I knew how good this buck was. And I sat on him till dark that day. Uh, you know, I watched people drive by and stop and look at him. So I wasn't the only one who had their attention <laughs> on this buck. Um, finally, and here's how crazy this is. The buck is 42 yards away, pushes his does in front of my truck on a gravel road, middle of nowhere. I have no permission either side. I just watch him. I took some pictures. I'm filming. Five minutes after legal shooting light is over, guess who calls me? Mm-hmm. Lando. Landowner. Mm. Imagine that. <laughs> oh, yeah. You could shoot him, too. You didn't even need to ask. We don't like of antelope course. around here. Yeah? Of course. And yeah. Of I'm course. like, oh, insult to injury here. So yeah. that was a long night sleeping. Next morning I get up. I'm there. I'm ready. And, of course, he's not there. They're not there. But a couple hours into the day, they start coming out of CRP field from the north come right down to where I can hunt them. They get across the road. I've got them at 200 yards. Keep in mind, I'm octagon barrel, iron sights. I'm not shooting 200 yards. I'm keeping it, you know, maybe 120 if I felt good about it, but uh, most likely under 100 for that gun. And they get in a little bit closer, and this white, you know, gas field, oil field truck pulls over, slams on his brakes, binoculars out the window, blew them out of there, completely blew them out, and they were coming right towards me. Oh, Regroup. Man. Onyx Maps, thank you again. <laughs> More landowners to chase down. And I got a couple of no's when I knocked on doors. Antelope are still moving north. They're two miles north of where I was hunting them now. And I see this farmer driving his truck across the, a wheat field. You can't even tell it's a wheat field because it's barely grown. And I uh, stopped him as he was coming out in the ditch and asked him, I said, do you give permission to antelope hunt? And he says, well, I mean, guys pay me to antelope hunt. <laughs> and the way he said it, I could I could read. I, yeah, I called his bluff on that. And I was like, oh, okay. But I was just wondering because you got four antelope out bedded in the middle of your wheat field. And he goes, oh, you want to chase them? <laughs> You're hunting with a muzzleloader? I don't think you can get on them. Okay, I'll let you hunt this section of mine right here. Only thing I ask is if you actually get out there and you can kill that buck, you should call me. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> so the game was on. Three hours later, after I'm crawling face down in a flat, I mean, western Kansas, yeah. flat as a pancake wheat field. If it wasn't for tumbleweeds, I had zero cover. So I would go from one tumbleweed ankle to the next one. Long story short, 53 yards, they're all bedded. I sit up on my hind, you know, on my hind end, put the gun across my knee. The doe, one sees me, everybody else facing away. She stands up, but she doesn't run. She doesn't know what I am. And then as soon as he stands up, I put him back down. So 53-yard shot vetted. So how far uh, did you crawl exactly from the minute you had to get down to the minute you shot? I mean, what's your, did, you get, did, you, did you measure it or what's your estimate? Well, I, I can tell you it was three-quarters of a mile. Good so Lord. Three-quarters of a mile from the south road. It was one of those uh, four-square-mile sections with no roads in between. So big, big yeah. section, all crop fields except for a little drainage ditch, you know, to my, to my, my west. Shot him there, called the landowner, tell him I shot him. He was like, no, you didn't. You didn't kill that buck. And I said, I did. Do you mind if I drive in here? And he says, I don't want you driving on my wheat field. He says, you, you pack him out of there. I'm like, okay. Hiked mm. back to my truck, got my pack frame, hiked back to the antelope, gutted him, strung him on my pack frame, and hiked him out. And, man, that, yeah. So what was, so, so the farmer was obviously, um, a little bit boisterous about these antelope and your ability to get on them. So what was his overall, re- I mean, obviously he didn't want you driving his wheat field, but what was his reasoning for wanting you to follow up with him just because he just didn't think that it would happen or what, what was his attitude yeah. at that point? And, and this guy, and I, I took him a case of beer afterwards, uh, you know, and I, I gave him $200 trespass fee, really, you know, uh, just to thank you in case I ever draw that tag again. 
because he let me know he has actually has access to about 30,000 acres out there. Oh, wow. Thought, okay. Yeah, make friends with him. You in my pocket. I think I'd have gave you more than 200. <laughs> I'd have given him about 1,000, 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, an extra case I, of beer. <laughs> yeah, but after talking to him, I could tell you, the guy was just – I mean, the guy is just a jokester. He's a prankster. He is just, yeah. I mean, he, he's a good old boy, but he, and he told me, he said, there's no way in hell I thought you'd get out there. I, I thought, okay, well, this guy, if he's not going to pay me, I'm, I'm going to make him work for this. And, yeah. Well, I showed him the buck and his first, <laughs> his first thing he said is, whoa, that buck's a lot bigger than I thought he was laying out there in the field. Had I known he was that big, I probably wouldn't let you go shoot him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that. That's wild. I, I, so I've the extent of my crawling as a hunter has been, and I've done a lot of it turkey hunting, but never at a distance like that. Um, I don't know if you said this, and if you did, I apologize. How far, you, or not how far, but how long in total was this? Like the stock. Yeah. The, like The actual stock, from when I got out of my truck with the gun and stocked on him, it was probably, I don't know exact, but it is dang near close to hour 30, hour 45 minutes. Okay. And it was it was all hands, knees, or, or face and belly. I mean... It was a low crawler. So imagine you just have to be like really patient. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Yep. For sure. And there, you know, antelope, one thing about antelope is, is they're pretty habitual. You, I've spent enough years with them to know that once they get to a spot where they feel comfortable. So some of that stock was actually sitting there, you know, 600 yards away, just watching body language. Once they get comfortable for that mid morning nap, they'll be there for a couple hours. They're not going anywhere. If they search around, they know that they're they're in a good spot. You can just slowly, patiently get in on them, and, and uh, that that was the benefit I had. I'd watched them all morning. I knew they were on their feet from sunup until then. So by the time I got on them, about eleven thirty, you know they were they were resting. They were pretty good. Yeah. So that's a cool story. It is. I I I, I and I'm sure that you can probably tell. I mean. You know, with a career in antelope hunting, how many of those can you tell where it didn't end like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You crawl, you go, you spend hours and hours, and you get over. We we have this thing in antelope hunting. We say once they go over the hill, they just blow up. Yeah. Meaning there has been dozens upon dozens that you think, oh, they just went over that little hill. I can get there. You get to the top of the hill, and you can see for two, three miles. There's not an antelope in sight. Yeah. <laughs> Where they went, I don't know. So, yeah, it ends up not working out probably four or five times for every time it actually works out. So, um, this is a very much, and you'll, you're going to get a few of these in this conversation, but this is a very 101 beginner level question. I'm sure antelope can smell, right? Or, or yeah. I mean, is it is it to the extent of other big game animals? You have to hunt the wind, I'm sure, right? Yeah, you, you play the wind. You don't have to play it. Yeah, really, in my experience, you don't need to play the wind at all until you're inside of 100 yards. Like, okay. it it doesn't matter. Their nose is not what they use. They use their eyes and the fact they can run 60 miles an hour. So if yeah. they see you and get up and decide to go, good luck. You know, it's it, – <laughs> but their, their eyes have been compared to, like, an eight or nine power – set of binoculars so they can see honestly they can watch a grasshopper crawl across your hat at 200 yards yeah isn't it aren't they like isn't there like it's not like 360 but it's like almost 360 degrees that they can see right yes yeah in fact i've taken some pictures doing some uh photography on antelope straight from the back side of a buck if he has his ears straight up you can see his eyeballs on both sides and you're directly behind him. Yeah, they're so like they're, they're alien-like almost. They bulge out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they're and, and most of the time they're afraid of their shadow. I mean, most of the time they are very wary animals until you get them, you know, one of two places. Either they're ready to bed and they've they've checked it out for 30 minutes. They know that they're safe right there. Or, you know, the other side, the other time you can get on them is when they're heavy, heavy feeding. And when the bucks are kind of concerned with the nose, it's like, it's, you know, rut time and whitetail, 
mule deer, whatever. Yeah. Same thing with antelope. And that rut, I know you asked this before, right? that rut time, generally speaking, mid-September to early October, um, it changes a little bit when you go north-south. But that so mid-September. I've seen a lot of antelope hunts um, on television and, and uh, you know, digitally and stuff, filmed hunts where, you know, it's either the spot and stalk style of hunt like you're talking about or it's the water holes and stuff like yeah. that is there any other i mean i know those are two primary strategies and, I, and a lot of times i'm assuming the the water hole um sitting over the water holes is archery usually and i'm guessing that's early season before the rut is that yeah that's usually and, and you can do that during the rut too yeah the water hole is is really your archery opportunity i've, I've archery hunted them a couple of times spot and stock and that uh if you want to get frustrated and, and get mm-hmm. close oh so many times and come home with a tag, that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> I can only yeah. imagine. I, so. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I was – I guess kind of how I was leading with the question is, I mean, how many other strategies really are there? Those, those are the two. So you either sit water because they do drink water at least one time a day uh, – or it's spot and stock. And most people it's, it's spot and stocks, what you do. Um, you know, I, I prefer the spot and stock with my boots. Uh, there are guys spot and stock with, you know, with the truck or with ATV and, you know, that's great. At some point in time, you're going to have to get off of it, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, crawl in on them, but there, there's nothing quite like walking after one and realizing you've put six, seven miles on following the same buck all day long over one hill and moving around, yeah. and, you know, till you get the right, right opportunity so another 101 beginner question what is uh you know we see these things from the road when we're traveling we see them on television and stuff like that what you know a mature a mature buck what's what's the average body weights and how does that fluctuate because you know obviously with whitetails a mature buck here at my house in louisiana is 180 190 pounds a mature buck in kansas is 250 you know, so does that vary with antelope and what's the average, what kind of body weight are, are you getting from these mature bucks? Yeah, it, it does. Most of the mature bucks are going to be 110 to 130 pounds. And uh, that is almost everywhere you go. The biggest bodied one that I have personally seen is one I shot uh, up in Wyoming and it was 160 to 165 pounds, uh, you know, based on gutting it and weighing what we, the yeah. carcass, once we got it back, it was 160 to 165, which that's unheard of in the antelope world. You know, 130 is yeah. normal big body buck. Well, I, did, I mean, I would, I would guess there's some, so, you know, with a lot of animals, a lot of big game animals, you know, the diversity of terrain if they're eating sagebrush as opposed to they live in farm country where they're eating wheat and things like that, does that, does that change, you know, put, does it put on more weight for them or when they're further North where they live in colder climates, does that put on more weight or not it, much? It really? Yeah, it really doesn't. So one of the smallest mature bucks I ever killed was in Montana. Um, you know, body size, he was mature. I, I age all of them. And, and I'll tell you, you know, most of them hit that Boone and Crockett for me are four and a half, five and a half years old. However, at three and a half, most your antelope reach their maximum trophy potential. Um, they could just carry it for three years after that. But yeah. they they mature real quickly. They're a throwback animal. I mean, they're Pleistocene era. They they are yeah. old, old, old. Uh, they used to have four horns ten thousand years ago. So had horns growing right behind the the main horns. And every once in a while, in a real good moisture year, they will get that residual horn growth. Uh, you, you'll see it on social media every year. You know, there's two or three pictures that show up. I finally, finally took one two years ago that had those extra really? two horns. So, do they yeah. get that score in the official scoring? No, no, no. they just they count like they're not even there. So. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, I that that it, you know, analog. They don't shed their horns either. They're uh, I don't know the biological terminology for this, but there's, you know, a difference between an antler and a horn, right? So they just grow their whole life, right? Not the case. It is the only horned, and I'm glad you hit on this. The pronghorn antelope we have in the United States and, well, North America, I should say, they're the only horned animal in the world that does shed their horn every single year. So there's a bone core underneath there, and it has hair and, you know, some uh, you know, skin veins, if you mm-hmm. will. 
uh, all of that. So they actually drop their sheaths in November every year. They'll, the bucks will lose those sheaths and then they start growing them again. And, and uh, yeah, they grow a different set. So in a real bad drought year, generally speaking, you could have a buck that might be 16 inches the year before. And then it's a terrible nutrition year. That same buck could be a 14 inch tall buck the very next year and then bounce right back. So yeah, that only horned animal that drops them every year. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I think I've heard now that you say that, I think I have heard that before. Um, that's just so different from what we're used to with mule deer and whitetail and elk and antlered animals, you know. Uh, it's a very interesting animal. One thing that I've uh, I've always wondered because I've never been exposed to it, what is the best – what's the best cut of meat on an antelope and what's the best way to prepare it in your opinion? Well, yeah, I – I will tell you, I, I love the back straps with, you don't have to add much because they've got the natural sage flavor mm-hmm. like infused in the meat because that's, you know, a large part of most of their diets, depending on where they are. Uh, a little bit of salt and pepper and throw it on the smoker. And the thing about antelope, there's no fat on those animals. Like they are lean, lean, lean. So you've got to err on that medium, medium rare side uh, or oh, else it'll get, it'll get way dry. too tough. But the rest of it, and it's pretty well everybody does the same thing with the rest of it. It's ground sausage, summer sausage, breakfast sausage, you know, some ground, hot links. Yeah. Yeah. Ground meat. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That one of these uh, one of these days we'll get to try some. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna Colin and Colin's dad are, are amateur connoisseur chefs. So has your dad ever cooked <laughs> really my dad. Really your dad. Does your dad has your dad ever cooked antelope that you know of? No, no, he, he hasn't ever cooked any any antelope but if you brought it over he'd probably cook it tonight so (laughs) just give it a give it a try he he loves trying all and even like i mean there's so we we hunt just really quick we hunt out like in west texas and there's all kind of animals out there they got all dad and mouflon and everything where we hunt and people say you know some aren't good some are good and i mean he he will try to cook any cut of meat at least once or twice mm-hmm. um just because he just enjoys it that much but no he, he hasn't ever cooked uh he hasn't ever cooked antelope before here's a common yeah. thing that i find because i have heard in in all fairness to the conversation i've always heard that antelope's not that great as far as in the hierarchy of big game but i find every in in no matter what it is what species when you find someone who's very active in hunting that animal and has had success and had the opportunity to go through the trial and error process, there's, you're going to find, you know, some good recipe. Somebody's figured it out, you know, like no matter what it is. But with that being said, it's really hard to beat venison out of a corn bean field <laughs> Midwest for taste because <laughs> they're just so much fat on them. They live, they have such great, nutrition you know in that regard and um i've heard the same thing about mule deer that live in real open country where there's a lot of sage and you know that it's just you know i guess a, a leaner a leaner style of meat that's harder to harder to it's hard to mess up real fatty venison really hard to mess that up in my opinion but but uh yeah. so i'm curious so you it, it we've talked about this a little bit but you know you you did your three state tour is that kind of always a september into october kind of thing for you and you're done for the year as far as antelope or what's your timing? Uh, yeah it, it can start in august you know honestly uh you know august august 15th 14th somewhere around that range normally new mexico starts mm-hmm. about that time this year it was uh august 22nd i was in nevada middle of nowhere nevada uh hunting antelope and then uh mid-september was wyoming First weekend October was was Kansas, so it's usually that mid August to mid October, and which is nice because it extends that hunting season. Yeah. And then I still have late October, November, December, and you know can chase uh, whatever else is on the list, uh, yeah. you know, which is good. I just hit back to one point. You talked about the meat. I will tell you two biggest mistakes people make on an antelope because you do hunt them that early. It's hot outside. In fact, I've had a handful of hunts. It's over 100 degrees when you shoot that animal. 
and they have no fat on them. Uh, but it, it is hot, hot, hot. And if people don't get them cooled down, you got to get them clean and cooled down uh, probably quicker than any other animal that I've hunted yeah. to, to protect the, you know, the quality of that game because they will, they'll, they'll start to, we call it saging up, but it, it's like the meat gets a little gamey. If you don't get it cooled right away, it will, it'll have yeah. a little bit of an odd flavor. And I can imagine too, you're in the wide open. You can't even get them into a, a creek bottom in the shade, you know, to, to, to they're, 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 they're literally probably baking in the sun from the minute you, from the minute <laughs> yeah. you take them to the minute you get them cooled down. So that's a good point. That, that's, that's really a point that people need to, I, I know from, you know, my travels and my hunts, you know, when you go out west or you get further north, some, some of the lackadaisical sort of nature, those guys have because they have such cool dry temperatures that they they don't have to you know it, it it's shocking almost because even down here in the south it's it's i mean even in november and december we have 80 degree days and when you kill a deer and it runs off in a briar thicket somewhere and it takes you six hours to find it and by the time you get it out like people don't realize how quickly you start losing quality on your meat if you don't get that cleaned and cooled down quickly so that's that's really a good point to make about anything honestly like it it's uh it's very and i've i've done podcast with um quite a few different guys over the years that are you know heavily into wild game preparation and wild game cooking and that's that is one of the most probably the most recommended kind of practice for any kind of deer or, or big game is get the deer field dressed and cooled down or antelope in this case or whatever, as quickly as possible. Because, uh, you know, I, I guess it, it, it's always nice when it's dropping down in the thirties before it ever really, even the sun and gets down and gives you that, that kind of freedom. But I mean, that just, you know, that's not always the case and, and it has a big effect. So it's a good point that you made. I'm curious to know, um, what else do you have planned for the year? I know you're, you're done with your antelope. What, it, what, what do you have on the books for the rest of this season? Yeah, well, I actually fly out to Florida with a couple of buddies tomorrow. We're going to go wrangle some alligators. So oh. that's, uh, that's one of those little asterisk, you know, hunts. Yeah. Um, I did it last year with, I took my wife last year and she got a good eight foot gator and I got one just shy of 12 foot, man, that's just such a blast. So I got that coming up and then uh, then back to actually hunting, you know, big game animals. I'll be hunting Oregon uh, muzzleloader hunt for Columbia blacktail deer uh, late November, first couple days in, in December. And uh, then, I, you know, I keep it open after that. It'll be December will be most likely pick up a muzzleloader season tag in Nebraska. It's open whole month of December. So uh, I've got some family up in the area. So always a place to hunt. And then, uh, then I move into January, which is every single year I'm in Mexico in January. Really? So deer hunting? Coos deer. Coos deer. Okay. Yep. So is the Columbia blacktail, is that a new adventure for you or have you done that before? I, I've hunted them three times. I've only killed one. So I am, uh, I, I'm just looking for a little bigger and better one. It took me 14 years of preference points to draw this unit and it's, it's the best unit in the state of Oregon, uh, for blacktail. So you know, with any kind of luck, I, I may have a trophy story there. That'd be awesome. Well, I wanted to, we start to wind down um, time on the podcast, but there was something I've been meaning to circle back to you on uh, since early on. I, I wanted to kind of get a little bit more from you. You you obviously are uh, heavily into muzzleloader hunting. That's, I, I'm, I'm taking, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering that that's your kind of your weapon of choice. So, Tell us, talk to us a little bit about that. Like what draws you to that style of hunting and, and you know, whatnot, what is it about that? That makes it your thing? Yeah, you bet. So I, I cut my teeth with a 270, you mm-hmm. know, that's my first, first big game rifle. My dad got me a 270. Um, and, and I shot a number of animals with that mule deer, whitetail, antelope early on in, in Wyoming. And, uh, and I liked it. It was fun. I moved to Alaska out of college. I bought a 300 win mag and, you know, I took some bears with that. And what changed me, what, what made it, I had a, I had a muzzleloader when I was a teen, didn't clean it well. You know what happens mm-hmm. there. The gun was, was, was no good after that. So, you know, I didn't quite understand it when I, when I was first, you know, gifted a muzzleloader, 
But what turned me into a muzzleloader hunter, it was 2001. I can tell you the year. Uh, I was actually up in Alaska. I took a, a bedded doll sheep at 413 yards with my 300 wind mag. Uh, my dad and I went down to Mexico that year and I, I shot a coos deer at 351 yards, um, or 315 yards, sorry. And then I took a doll sheep in Alaska running at 351 yards and all that was fine. You know, I'd become a marksman. Uh, I, I can shoot. And, uh, I had an old guy that after that doll sheep hunt, so we'd flown out, uh, you know, flown back to the landing strip, we were talking about it. And he was, you know, just telling stories like hunters do. That's one of the best things, right? We're, mm-hmm. We just all share the stories. And his words, he said, so you've proven you could shoot. Can you hunt? Yeah. And I thought, yeah. wow. And it, it, you know, it sat with me there. And I'm like, yeah, I could shoot, but can I hunt? Well, yeah, I was just hunting. I've, I've been hunting. But his words, you know, they hit pretty heavy. And this is an old timer. I don't know the guy's name. Never saw him again after that day. But those words have stuck with me. And uh, I thought, I need to revisit this muzzleloader thing. And I've killed some animals with a bow. I bow hunt as well. But, man, the muzzleloader, it's the romance of the smoke. I, I got to tell you, that white billowing cloud, there is something special about that. And then the challenge that you have one shot. I mean, I like to consider myself pretty quick at reloading components into a muzzleloader. Takes me about 20, 21 seconds to reload, which, you know, that's fast for muzzleloader. But 20, 21 seconds, if you miss that first that's shot. That's an eternity with a with an animal you just shot they at. Can, <laughs> they can run 60 miles an hour. Oh, yeah. That's quite a ways away. Yeah. If you're hunting them in Colorado, you better have a Kansas tag at that point. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I, you know, that's a similar, like I, I, I've pretty much gotten to the point now where, um, I exclusively bow hunt for everything except turkeys. I still, I still hunt turkeys with a shotgun, but um, it's it's not like now there is something, and and you you know you're a bow hunter, so you'll understand. Like there is something really cool about you know shooting a deer with a bow and arrow or any animal with a bow and arrow. But it's not just the shot. It's also kind of the intoxication of the process of having to get that close. You know, even getting that close to animals that you don't shoot, being able to do that and do it consistently, it opens up. There's just something. It just it provides more. There's more strategy. There's more everything involved in your process of hunting when you have to get that close and remain undetected and that's that you know that's kind of what drew me because i'm you know similar i I grew up in the south at deer camp and you know started out hunting with a shotgun as a young kid with buckshot and and then my dad got me a rifle um and 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 all that kind of thing and then as i got older i just got you know really into like i said the whole process involving getting really close to animals and remaining undetected and I've started to get a little bit more of an itch to expand and do more muzzleloader hunting because it provides more of that, you know, uh, more of that than um, it, as close as I can get with a firearm to kind of those same things that, that I love about bow hunting. So uh, that was just a question I wanted to ask because, you know, we're talking about you, obviously a ton of your success and a ton of your stories have revolved around hunting with a muzzleloader. And that's, and that's cool. That's not... You know, we talk to a lot of archers. We talk to a lot of long-range guys. We talk to, you know, and and some of the most sought-after tags in North America are either rifle tags or archery tags. You know, and the muzzleloader always sits right there in between. So that's that's really cool. Well, I, um, I, man, I've enjoyed the conversation. I've learned a lot about antelope hunting, and, um, I hope to, it's on my list of things somewhere in the near future, hopefully, but, uh, we wish you a lot of success on the rest of your adventures this year and look forward to continuing to showcasing um, the stuff that you're doing in the field, and we appreciate your contribution with Scree. It's been yeah. it's been cool to follow yeah. along and see see some of those trophy goats you're, you're killing each, a year in and year out. Yeah, well, I appreciate the time, and uh, it's it's been a fun conversation. That last little piece you touched on is – I mean, that's been a campfire discussion, right? Time with the animal. Why do you hunt with a limited range weapon? It's time with the animal. That's the only way you're going to learn their habits and, and really what they do and, and be able to, to raise the bar on how successful you could be is to truly understand the game you're chasing. Oh, you learn, time with the animal. You learn so much more 
putting yourself in those situations yep. than than just observing from afar. And so that's really cool. Colin, thank you for jumping in and, and filling in on the co-host seat today. And uh, we will be yep, – thank you. Colin and I are going to be in Kansas, and we're going to be recording a, the next the next podcast that you get from from here from Tree Country will be something that we're going to do on site while we're uh, while we're hunting in the Midwest, and hopefully we got some really cool Midwest whitetail rut stories to tell during that one. And I'm looking forward to that. That's coming up. Hopefully, we'll be able to tell some some cool stories from the guys that are hunting up in Canada next week. Um, it's that time of the year, man. You know, we we've got stories to tell because we've all been hunting for the last couple of months and we've got several months ahead so it's the most exciting time of the year uh want to kind of remind people as you're listening to this podcast here in the next coming days we're going to do our big pre black friday sale um so check that out at screegear.com thank you so much for listening to the podcast and following along i want to encourage all of you to reach out to me at lock at screegear.com that's l-o-c-k-e at screegear.com let me know uh, what you like about the podcast let me know what you don't like about the podcast and uh give me some ideas the things the guests that you want to hear from topics of conversation that you want to hear us talk about uh we thrive on that feedback from the, from the listening audience but we appreciate everybody that's been following along and making this a success so far and look forward to bringing you more thank you so much for listening today and we'll talk to you on the next episode you've been listening to the scree country podcast the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv